The schedule that came out should have said for this week that we're going to talk about scripture, tradition, revelation, things like that. And then next week, um, I stole the title from a podcast I like. It's called Catholic Stuff You Should Know. So it's various random bits of tra Catholic things that is probably important to know at some point. Um, and so this week, I'm going to talk about, though, yeah, scripture and tradition and all of that stuff. So if you want a fancy title, and when I send you the notes, they're going to look real fancy this time. So I did get my formatting down. Um, mostly, that's about all I was able to get <laughs> improved this week. But um, So revelation and magisterium. And by the end of the talk, hopefully you'll know what both of those words mean. Um, but the goal is, where do we get the stuff we teach in church from, right? Um, that's really what today is about. So after today, we should be able to, like, if you don't already know, uh, call the Bible the Word of God. Hopefully you'll understand why we call it that. Um, why for us Catholics, we can't base things just on Scripture alone. We need something more than Scripture. Um, hopefully you'll know what sacred tradition is and how it is important to the church. Um, you'll uh, see the word magisterium, blink a couple of times, and then say, oh yeah, it's that one thing that Father talked about that one time, right? Um, and then uh, today we'll talk a little bit about papal infallibility. Everybody loves that one, so that'll be fun. Um, and it's not, he's not as infallible as some people think. Um, that's the really short version of the story. Um, so hopefully after today we can get those things. Um, I've been learning from my teachers, you know, set goals for what you want people to know and maybe you'll do better. So, um, all right. So sacred scripture, AKA the Bible. And where did it come from? Because that is really the primary source of so many different things. And we have to see how the Bible was put together and developed over time. And that's why we say that the Bible alone is not going to be enough. Okay, so what happens is you have sacred scripture and then you have a tradition guiding it. And that's kind of the gist of it. So I'm going to get into that a bit. Uh, a bit and my mouth has also not been working today. A little bit. Okay, so we start with something that we call sacred tradition. And traditions, we know they're customs, they're ways of doing things that just get passed on from one generation to the next. And sometimes we're not exactly sure where they, where they start. Sometimes, you know, in our families, we want to start a new tradition um, around something. You know, we, we have lots of various traditions, but there's one particular kind of tradition we call sacred tradition. And that is a tradition that starts with Jesus Christ. And so last time we were here, I talked about Jesus a lot. And we talked about how he's the son of God who, had, uh, who became a human being, right? He's the son who became man. And when he came into this earth on Christmas, right? And we celebrate Christmas really soon. So this is actually a great time to talk about this. We say that God revealed himself fully to humanity because when he became one of us, he became someone we can relate to, someone we can understand in a more human way. So this person of Jesus Christ, we call him the revelation of God. 
And through him, uh, God is revealed to humanity. And so today I'm going to take a bunch of quotes from this thing called the U.S. Catechism for Adults because it describes this stuff really well. And when you're talking about these particular things, it's good to get it right, um, what the church actually teaches about it, because when we get this stuff wrong, that's when you get, you can get really weird things. So in the U.S. Catechism for Adults, it says that Jesus Christ, the divine Son of God become man, is the fullness of revelation by his teaching, witness, death, and resurrection. So each of those things that Jesus did while he was on this earth revealed God more and more to us. On the road to Emmaus, the risen Jesus showed the two disciples how the teachings of the prophets were fulfilled in him, excuse me, and proclaimed by his own lips. Just before his ascension, Christ commissioned the apostles to preach the gospel to all whose hearts would be open to receive them. The revealed word of God and the gospel would be for everyone a source of saving truth and moral discipline. And so if you think about it, through his life, Jesus Christ showed us how to pass on this tradition. So he showed us what it was to be God. He showed us the love that God has for us. And then, for example, on the road to Emmaus, he showed us how to teach other people about himself. Because what he did on the road to Emmaus in the Acts of the Apostles, it's, um, <clears throat> no, sorry, John's Gospel. It's in John's Gospel. If you read that passage, Jesus comes across these disciples who don't recognize him after he's risen from the dead. And they're talking about all of the things that happened in Jerusalem. And he says, you guys don't understand what you've been reading this whole time. And he goes and shows them how the Old Testament, because that was the Testament at the time, right? He shows them how each of the prophets and, and the givers of the law revealed what God was going to do and how that culminated in Jesus. And then he continued walking with them. And then at the uh, supper that he had with them, when he broke the bread and blessed it and gave it to them, they recognized that because that's how he revealed himself to them at the Last Supper. They said, oh, we recognize this man. This is Jesus. Um, and then he disappears from their sight. And they talk to each other. They say, weren't our hearts burning and on fire when he was speaking to us, right? Um, and so, so that's how, how the, the knowledge of Christ has been passed from age to age, right? Uh, the scriptures are a wonderful thing, but it, it began primarily through that oral transmission, that preaching of the good news, that revealing how the scriptures of the Old Testament came to fruition in Jesus Christ. And so that's why it started out with this tradition thing. And then, I'm going to get ahead of myself here, but um, where did I go? Okay, so it's the living transmission of the message of the gospel in the church, all right? And the reason that it wasn't written yet, it, well, it wasn't written yet, but they eventually write it down because the apostles and the immediate followers of the apostles realize they're actually going to die before Christ comes again. So if they want people to know what happened, they really do need to have some written record of it. Um, they had a lot of times wouldn't write things down 
until they had to, one, because it was expensive, two, because it was actually kind of challenging to find someone who could write for you, so that adds more expense if you have to pay them to do that. Um, although, you know, some of the authors of the New Testament might have, might have written some of their own stuff. Um, but we know that, like, Paul's letters weren't always written by his own hand because it, one of the, uh, in one of Paul's letters, I think, <laughs> it's so funny, at the end of the letter he says, look, I'm writing this in my own hand. Notice how big the letters are, right? <laughs> so Paul's kind of poking fun at his own, um, you know, ability to write there. Um, and so it's this oral preaching of the message that's eventually written down. But I'm getting ahead of myself here a little bit. Um, so we have all these writings, though, that are written down. The big question is, how do we know which writings are actually from the apostles and things like that? And so we look at what they were using from the very earliest times in the church. And so what we know of as the New Testament was actually what was being used by the Christians at the very beginning when they gathered for their worship of Jesus Christ, um, usually on Sundays. I believe everybody did it on, all the Christians did it on Sundays. Um, sorry, so many things popping in my head when I say that. Calm down, Father. <laughs> so... Um, they would gather on Sundays and they read, um, they call them, uh, St. Justin Martyr uh, had this thing called an apology to, and they believe it was to the emperor. Um, an apology back then didn't mean I'm sorry, it meant here's an explanation. And so he wrote this really marvelous thing to the emperor um, trying to explain like, you really don't need to persecute the Christians. And in there he describes how they would worship on Sundays. And so he said that they would read from the memoirs of the apostles. And so we look at what they were reading when they worshiped God in those early times. And that's how we know that the gospels are the gospel because from the very beginning, those are what's been passed down as the, the gospel of Jesus Christ. We know that Paul's letters are Paul's letters because those are what have been passed down as these are the things that Paul wrote and taught to us um, through the generations. And we have fragments and scraps of these things going back almost to the first century. And then we have other evidences um, like lists of books that they would have in the various churches and things like that. And so, why were those books picked is really the question. Why are those the ones they read? And that's something that we call the um, part of the magisterium. And magisterium comes from a Latin word magister, which is teacher. And so, when we say magisterium in the context of the church, what we mean is that the church has this kind of a teaching authority. And it's most on display in situations like where it's putting the books of the Bible together so that we can know who Jesus Christ is. Um, the church's job through all the ages is to keep the, the fire of that sacred tradition I mentioned alive and to nurture it and to guide us as we go forward and to help us understand how Jesus Christ, who lives with us now, we don't see him, but he does, how he impacts our lives now. So that taking the sacred tradition 
and allowing us to experience it anew so that Jesus Christ can every day be a part of our lives. Um, but it's, it's through that, that teaching authority she gets um, as the safeguard or safeguard of tradition um, that we've collected all these scriptures. And it's, it's that same teaching authority that's rejected certain texts too. Um, so some of the texts that didn't make it into scripture, we have this book called the Didache. And that's actually a very good book to read. And it's, it's thought that the apostles themselves might have written it, but it doesn't have the same kind of quality of teaching um, and it's not the same kind of work as what you would find in scripture. Um, so if you go Google Didache, D-I-D-A-C-H-E, you'll find this thing. And it's actually fascinating um, and it's ancient. It comes from nearly the time of the apostles, but that did not make it into the Bible. Um, there are other things that are not good that didn't make it into the Bible, right? Every once in a while, you'll see in the news, they found some new gospel, right? And usually it's the gospel of Mary Magdalene. I don't know how many gospels of Mary Magdalene there are, but there are a lot of them. And generally what happens in these kind of things is um, they come from other traditions, um, that are basically what we would consider heresies, which are false teachings that people kind of stick with. And so they came up with these gospels and they said, oh, this is from Mary Magdalene, or this is a gospel according to, I think, James. Uh, they've got one uh, that they've attributed to him. Um, and some of the signs we know now for why they were rejected is these particular writings, they never came up until like, the, the third century or so, a lot of them, uh, which is when you started seeing um, a lot of these various heresies running around. Um, and I, did I talk about heresies at some point? I talked, oh yeah, because I talked about a lot of them were misunderstandings of who Jesus was. Um, and so like the Gospel of Mary Magdalene, usually you find some reference to Jesus being married, having a wife, uh, and that she was Mary Magdalene and probably has a bunch of kids too, right? We do not believe that, <laughs> okay? Um, <coughs> excuse me. <coughs> and then um, I can't remember which one it is, but it's a really fun one. I, I think it's the James one, but there's one of these writings that was not kept in the Bible. Um, where Jesus was a little kid and essentially the other kids were picking on him. So he turned them into birds. <laughs> yeah, the gospel of Thomas. That's right. Yeah, that's the one. Yeah. And so, I mean, you just read that and it's like, yeah, it's funny, but that's not how the Lord would have acted. Right. And um, so we know, okay, something's fishy about this book. So then you dig into it and realize, yeah, it wasn't written at the same time as the others. Um, we can't verify where it came from. Um, and so like we have all these different ways we verify the books of the Bible and I can get way into the weeds on this stuff because it's actually something I find really fascinating, um, is where these books came from. But there's a book called The Case for Jesus, 
And I, I can't remember if it was Dr. Ed Sree or Dr. Brant Petrie, um, but I think it was one of those guys. And so the first half of the book is talking about where the Gospels came from. And then the second half of the book is talking about the Jesus who is in those Gospels and how we can make a pretty strong case like, A, he existed, and B, he's the same guy that Catholics believe in, <laughs> essentially. Um, but the first half of this book, um, amongst other things, points out a lot of stuff like, you know, we say the gospel according to Matthew, the gospel according to Mark, the uh, gospel according to Luke, and the gospel according to John. Um, and they've said that in every manuscript that we have going back to the second and third century. Um, you have more manuscripts, because back when they, paper doesn't last forever, and so they recopy these things. And so if you keep going back and back, yeah, there's scribal errors every once in a while. But if you keep going back, you can find the Gospels especially is one of the most copied books. We have more evidence of the Gospels than we do of the Socratic dialogues, right? Um, so it's funny to me where you get people who say, Jesus didn't actually exist, but they believe Plato did. And there's like two manuscripts that give us the dialogues um, that if you ever took a philosophy class, you read some of these things and they're a hoot. We have to take philosophy classes in seminary to become a priest. And yeah, some of, the, some of Plato's dialogues are insane. Some of them are hilarious and other ones make you scratch your head. Um, but nobody seems to doubt that guy existed. Very little manuscript evidence of it. But the most well-documented manuscripts, the most common manuscript you find is the Gospels. Um, and that's just ever since Christ uh, ascended into heaven, which I guess I need to talk about the ascension at some point. I keep coming up with all the stuff I got to talk about. Um, Anyways, so we have a lot of strong evidence. The scriptures are reliable, that they've been there since the beginning. And um, so that kind of scientific evidence helps us to have faith in what the church has taught us too. Because the church doesn't sit there and say, well, we found manuscript A72 of the Gospel of Matthew, so we know it's reliable. Um, they number manuscripts funny. Um, but the scientific evidence of it backs up what the church has been teaching this whole time, which is always a nice thing for us to see. It helps our minds be a little bit more at ease, I think, when we see things like that. Um, what did I write here? Okay. Um, now, the scriptures themselves were written by people, um, but we also heard, hold them to be what we call the word of God. And so when we say that, what we mean is that God inspired these people to write, and he inspired them with what to write, but he didn't hold the pen for them. So everything you read in Scripture has a human lens on what God has asked them to write. Um, and so we, we call that inspiration, and back in that Catechism for Adults, it says, um, God is therefore the author of sacred scripture, which he means he inspired the human authors acting in and through them. He ensured 
that the authors taught without error those truths necessary for our salvation. Inspiration is the word used for the divine assistance given to the human authors of the books of sacred scripture. This means that guided by the Holy Spirit, the human authors made full use of their talents and abilities while at the same time writing what God intended. And so that helps us to understand why certain parts of scriptures are very different, right? If you read Genesis, for example, you'll notice that the first two chapters are two different creation stories, right? And we noticed this a long time ago. Even the Jewish people noticed this, that we have two different creation stories. That doesn't mean that God created the world twice. Um, you know, <laughs> the, ancient, the ancient Jews were not stupid, right? Um, they believed in the same kind of inspiration in scripture. So whoever that author of Genesis was, whether, you know, for a long time they held that it was Moses who wrote the first five books of the Bible, but there are a couple of problems with that theory, especially because Moses dies before the end of the fifth book. Um, so you wonder how he finished it, but um, whoever wrote these things being inspired by God was trying to help us understand something about the why, right? Um, and so you have like the seven days of creation where God creates the day and the night and separates the, the waters of the sky from the waters of the earth and all of this and that. And then the, the pinnacle of all that creation, the final thing he creates in all of it is humanity. And there's a lot of things he's, the, the scriptures are trying to teach us with that story of creation. One, that God created. Two, that he ordered the universe. Like there's an order that should hopefully at least make some bit of sense to us and we can rely on things to be in an orderly manner. But that humanity is the pinnacle of it. That after he creates humanity, he rests. And so we hold some special part of creation, which is really kind of humbling if you think about it. Like in the first chapter of the Bible, we're being told that there's something special about being a human being that no other creature in the entire universe has. Um, and I think I might have mentioned this at some point, or it might have been a homily. Everything gets really mixed together <laughs> for me. But the angels you know, are these powerful spiritual creatures, but they're only spiritual, they're not material. We as human beings are material and spiritual, so we can actually do things that angels can't, right? They are smarter than us, but we have gifts that they don't have. Um, and that, I think I did talk about this because the devil's jealous of us, essentially, and that's why everything went to pot, because um, he got in there and started causing trouble, because he's smarter than us and can trick us. Um, <clears throat> so that's what we learn in Genesis, though. Humanity has a special place. We also learn that God rests on that seventh day, and is it like God goes and takes a nap? No, it's the biblical authors trying to remind us that rest is a good and important and holy thing and that when we rest, we should do so with the Lord. So that's why on Sunday, which as Christians, it's our day of rest. Unless you're a Seventh-day Adventist, they do it on Saturday. They have a lot of interesting things they do. Um, they've won a lot of Supreme, sorry. 
really rabbit holing bad today. I apologize. Um, okay. Sunday is our day of rest because it's the day of resurrection and it's the day where we remember that Jesus Christ saved us. And so it's the most important day for us to spend time with God. That's why it changed from the Jewish Sabbath of Saturday to the Christian uh, Sunday. Or if you look in any other language except English, day of the Lord, right? Um, like, well, okay any European language. I should caveat that. <laughs> um, like Dominica in Latin, um, Domingo in Spanish. You know, if you look, those are all some form of the word Lord. So for Lord's Day. Um, all right, I'm getting way off topic here. The oral preaching of the apostles, blah, 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 blah. Okay, so uh, basically to summarize a lot of what I just said, the oral preaching of the apostles and the written message of salvation uh, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, um, that is the Bible, are conserved and handed down as the deposit of faith through the apostolic succession in the church. Um, both the living tradition and the written scriptures have their common source in the revelation of God and Jesus Christ. So that brings it all together. Jesus Christ revealed God to us. We taught about that orally and we wrote it down. That that seed of the faith that we were getting at the very, given at the very beginning and entrusted to the church. Another thing we call it is the deposit of faith. Like, um, you know, like when you make a deposit in the checking account is like how I think of it, except the balance never goes away. You can always withdraw from Jesus. Oh yeah. All right, sorry. That's like a dad joke, I apologize. Um, apostolic secession is something I'll get to here in just a second. Um, so this, that's just kind of how things go, you know. Um, we have this tradition, and through that tradition, we've gotten these scriptures. And, and the scriptures even tell us that this is kind of the way we should do things. So um, St. Paul's second letter to the Thessalonians, he writes, So then, brethren, stand firm and hold to the traditions which you are taught by us, either by word of mouth or by letter. Um, so St. Paul is telling us, like, these are the two ways we transmit the faith, is by word of mouth and by letter. Um, wow, I talk too much. Okay. Um, so when we see scripture, it's probably a good idea to think a little bit about how to read it. And I was starting to get into this because I can't contain myself to the outline that I write for myself. Um, the church teaches that an encounter with scripture is like an encounter with Christ himself. Uh, St. Francis of Assisi, who started the Franciscans, he's actually the guy responsible for making the nativity scene. He was the first one who put one up. And I think um, they're actually having like a really, I just read a couple days ago that like since it's the 800th anniversary of the nativity scene, if you go to a Franciscan church, you can get um, like, you can say a few special prayers and get um, special indulgences, which is something we'll talk about another time. Um, but that goes till February. So I might have a chance to talk about it by then. Um, there's no Franciscan churches in the diocese though. Anyways, so St. Francis, he's the one who came up with the nativity scene. Um, but it's said that he would venerate 
a scrap of scripture that he found on the floor um, right up along there with the holiest things that he could find because of the great value of it, because it was the word of God, because it could lead to that encounter with Jesus Christ. And so if we start with that kind of thinking, it helps us understand how to read scripture because we can't read scripture like another book. We have to read it. If we want to really understand it, we have to be coming from a place of faith um, and, and ideally a, a place of prayer um, where we're open to hearing what the Lord wants us to hear. Um, my pastor growing up, I was older, so like the second half of growing up, um, said that every single word of Scripture is a challenge to us. Um, because of what God can say through just a single word. Um, So when we read scripture, we should try and be attentive to what God wants to reveal to us. And remember that Christ is at the center. And that scripture, even though it looks like words on a page, it's something that's alive and can speak to us. Um, That's what we do every Sunday, right? Uh, Or at least what I try to do every Sunday you know, is we read those sacred scriptures and then in the homily we try to see how does that scripture come alive and apply to me right now and today? What does it teach me right now and today? Um, So when we read scripture, that's what we should be trying to understand is what does God want me to hear right now from it? Um, And when we're really digging in, trying to understand what's actually in there, there's two ways to understand everything in scripture. There is the literal sense and the spiritual sense. Okay, so this is, I'm not going to get too deep into this because it can get a little technical, but basically what's actually written on the page and the context in which it was written really matters, right? So if you read the Psalms, which is this book of prayers and poetry, essentially in Hebrew, it's a different kind of book than the gospel, And that's okay, but we have to keep that in mind, right? And so the book of Psalms uses imagery in a different way, right? When it talks about waters flowing, it doesn't literally mean waters flowing. A lot of times it's talking about something else using that imagery of flowing waters, right? But if Matthew is talking about flowing waters, he very well might actually mean the River Jordan or something. Um, And so when we read it, we have to take into account what kind of book this is. Um, when it was written in history, who they were writing to, things like that. And that's where you can get a commentary. There's lots of really good commentaries out there. Um, And uh, if you're interested, shoot me an email and I can tell you which ones I like. Um, But they can help break that open because like if you start reading the prophets, um, there's like an 800 year span where all the prophets happen, but they're all right next to each other in the Bible. And so if you're reading um, from the prophet Amos, who just, man, that dude just sounds like he has a bad day every day. You know, you read that book and there's just not a lot of happiness. And <laughs> it seems like the Lord is coming and y'all are in trouble if, you know, that's Amos's message. Right, But then you read Isaiah, which is an incredibly long book and possibly written by two or three different guys. At least that's one of the theories they have. Um, and for him, he's got some of those rough parts, but then he's got some of the most 
beautiful things you'll ever read in scripture. Um, and a lot of times they call him the fifth gospel because of how much he foretold about like the, the birth of the Lord and things like that. Um, so keeping that in mind when we read it is really important. Um, and then there's the spiritual sense. Um, and so that's essentially how God is generally going to be speaking to us uh, the various different ways. Um, so you have a bunch of things I listed on here. Um, this is stuff that's probably just better to read. So I'll send you the notes and you can read it there. But they're called the allegorical sense, the moral sense, and the anagogical sense. And I can't even keep them straight without reading which one is which half the time. Um, but allegory, um, you know, when you see the Jewish people crossing the Red Sea, um, the allegorical sense teaches us that that's the Bible prefiguring baptism in a way, even though that's not what they thought then, right? They thought it was us cro them crossing the Red Sea. But now we see that God was working through history to teach us even more from the event than just what happened. Um, the moral sense, um, so these are things in scripture that teach us to act justly. Uh, St. Paul writes for our instruction a lot of times. Today's reading at Latin Mass was like a really direct moral instruction. It's like, avoid licentiousness and lust and impurity and debauchery and drunkenness. It's like, oh, okay, thanks, Paul. That's actually really straightforward. I can work on that, <laughs> you know? <laughs> Yeah, um, and then there's the anagogical sense, which um, is kind of us seeing things in relation to eternity. Um, and so there's a little more explanation on here that I'll send you guys. Uh, there's a couple of errors that we can run into when we read scripture. Um, one of them that's really common in the United States is a fundamentalist understanding of scripture, okay? Um, so that's literalism which is a little different than understanding the sense, the literal sense. So literalism is like, that's like when I think God took the pen and wrote it down for me, you know? Um, and so, so you lose context and it, it becomes a mess. And then it leads itself to all these various different private interpretations and you know, you get this in a lot of Protestant circles, and sometimes that's when you get some really weird stuff going on, like snake handling, because in Scripture it says something about handling snakes. And so let's go find some snakes and handle them, and hopefully we don't die, right? But if we don't believe, we're like, it's, it's crazy, because they're like, if we don't handle snakes then we're faithless. And so we have to go find venomous snakes and handle them. And if we die, our faith wasn't strong enough. It's like, no, it's because the snake bit you. Sorry. I have some things. All right. Anyways, so the important thing is it's not literal, but there is a, a, a literal sense to it but those aren't quite exactly the same thing. And that's one of the things that the traditions of the church can help us unpack is this is a part that's to be taken a little more figuratively than like go find yourself a snake and play with it, you know. Um, one that's a lot more common, uh, especially since 
the 18th century is reducing everything to a science. Um, and so they try to take the spiritual part out of scripture, which doesn't make a whole lot of sense if you believe in God. Um, but the problem is you have a lot of people studying scripture who don't believe in God. And so they do this thing where they try to take all the spiritual stuff out of it. And I don't know what they're trying to do. I just don't understand it. You'll get these um, things where people have taken all of, I, I think Thomas Jefferson did this even. He had like this set um, of the gospels where they took all the stuff that Jesus did that was supernatural out of it. And like, it's probably three sentences, you know? <laughs> and so um, a lot of modern biblical scholars, um, there are Christians and there are Catholics who do this, um, deny the spiritual elements and realities to, and they, they try to explain away the miracles because it makes more sense to their human mind if there's nothing supernatural in it. Um, but that confines scripture. Um, and it confines God, and we can't do that. That's very problematic if we try to put God in a box. God does not like being in a box. He will break out of the box, and he will let you know that he broke out of the box, so don't try to put him in a box. Um, so the Pontifical Biblical Commission, um, the, the Pope's guys who study Bible uh, told us there's there's kind of five assumptions that you can't start with when you're reading scripture. You can't deny that there's the supernatural, right? Um, you can't deny that God has come into the world and intervened in the world. Again, those are both really hard things to do if you actually have faith in God. Uh, you can't deny the possibility of miracles um, because miracles are simply what we call God working in the world. Uh, you can't um, have, a, like, you have to accept that faith and history are compatible. Um, so the church is like, we're not afraid of questions in science because there's only one truth. And so it all has to end up in the same place. A lot of science these days asks how, not why. And they forget that they're asking a different question than the church is. And that's why you get all these scientists who like you got Bill Nye, the science guy, trying to do philosophy, and he's really terrible at it. Like, and you can quote me on that, you know. Um, and then um, you'll also get a lot of people who to try to deny the historical value of the the scriptures. But if you look, um, they're actually the, like the Gospel of Luke in particular. Um, comes to mind. He sets the birth of Jesus very distinctly in a particular um, time and place. Uh, he gives you the years and all of that. And um, there's some really smart Bible guys who actually looked at that and they said, okay, so if you look at the years that Luke gives us based because he tells you which emperor was there, which governor was there in, in Judea and all of these things. And that's how they got, um, you know, the, the year that is not called zero, but one, right? Um, when they redid the calendar under Pope Gregory the Great, um, the Gregorian calendar, um, which was a fixing of the Julian calendar. Uh, because they were like 13 days behind or something from the solar cycle. 
Anyways, um, where was I going with that? Oh yeah, they were calculating the date, right? And they got really accurate for Christ's birth considering their historical knowledge at that time. Um, and these guys, so they're Orthodox priests, so from the Eastern Orthodox Church, um, and maybe someday I'll talk about them, but I probably won't because I don't have time. <laughs> I have so many things I want to talk about um, that really dig into the scripture stuff. They said, you know, Jesus was probably actually born right around the year one. And if you look at the phenomena in the sky that are accounted for in the gospel and things like that, you can actually come up with a particular day um, that they think he was born. Uh, and it's not Christmas. Um, Chris, the Christmas day uh, is the day we celebrate his birth. But um, these guys said that September 11th is the day they think that all these phenomena would know would converge. Um, so the fact that you can kind of extract that from scriptures tells you that they actually did care about getting their facts right. Um, and they actually did care about their accuracy. Um, now, the way we celebrate things is a different topic altogether, but um, they also probably didn't have the historical knowledge that we have now, because we have really good archeology span and stuff like that now that they wouldn't have had back then when they were setting these dates. Anyways, I've gone down a complete rabbit hole there. I'm running out of time, just like normal. Great, all right, um, okay. Uh, scripture and tradition together are called divine revelation. Um, I talked about that already. Uh, Jesus Christ must be proclaimed. Okay. Um, then there's this thing called magisterium that I mentioned a little bit. Um, and under that topic, there's just a few other things to mention. So we call it magisterium. It's also called the teaching authority of the church. And this is um, an area where we can get into trouble if we don't understand what's going on. So if you start with faith, you recognize that to have faith in anything, you have to basically kind of submit yourself to another. So if you have faith in God, you're sort of submitting yourself to him in a way, um, to his will or, or something like that. And so as Christians, we have faith in God through uh, as Catholics, we have faith in God through his church. So we submit our wills to God, but we allow ourselves to be guided by the church to him. Um, and, and Christ left the church on the earth and entrusted that revelation, that tradition to her. And so um, I have a whole section on things. Um, so if, if you listen to the Nicene Creed, the four things that we say about our church is that it is one holy Catholic and apostolic. And what that means is one, um, it's unified throughout the world. And that's why it's such a scandal that it's not unified, but it's supposed to be, and it was originally. Um, and then holy, we are united with Christ. Um, and so that's, that's what holiness is, is closeness to, to Jesus Christ. Um, Catholic in this tense means universal. So there is not an end of the earth where the church should not be. And there's not a race or nation or peoples that the, church, that, that the, the good news should not go to. That's what we mean when we say Catholic in that sense. And that's really what we mean when we say Catholic church. Um, big C is just how we call it, but the reality is we're supposed to be the universal church that goes to everyone. Um, 
and then apostolic. So we were founded on the apostles and those who followed them. And so that's where the, the teaching authority comes in, is with that apostolic part of the church. Because the apostles, they were the first teachers, right? Um, the, the disciples learned from Christ and new, new um, um, bishops, essentially, were called from among those ranks by the apostles themselves. And so bishops are understood to be the successors of the apostles. And we get this from the Bible, actually, and our tradition, but the Bible shows us where the tradition got it from. So Judas, after the crucifixion of the Lord, killed himself. And the apostles needed another person to complete their ranks. They saw themselves as incomplete. So they elected Matthias to be the next apostle. Um, and what that teaches us is they saw themselves not as this just group of 12 dudes who Christ picked and when they die, they just stay gone. They saw themselves as something that needed to outlast their own lives. Um, so when they picked Matthias as a successor and then later on, uh, Paul becomes an apostle. Um, that's them showing us that they believe there are successors to them with that same teaching authority that they have. Um, and so, where did I write that? Okay, so, um, yeah, Christ appointed the apostles. The apostles appointed successors, and um, we call them bishops. And when we gather all the bishops together, we call them the College of Bishops. Um, and just as Peter was kind of the, the head honcho, sort of, of the apostles, the Pope is the head honcho, sort of, of all of our bishops. Um, so he can kind of tell them what to do, um, but they are considered to be in charge. Uh, and they really do, like, they tell me what to do, right? I don't tell the bishop what to do. <laughs> um, and so the bishops, um, a great description is that the bishop works in his diocese as a uh, priestly shepherd and teacher. He possesses the fullness of the priesthood and is the principal settlement of sacraments. We'll talk about sacraments. Um, his job is to help the church grow in holiness and union with Christ. And so our bishop is Bishop Kemi, um, and Bishop Kemi is in charge for making sure that this kind of southeast quarter of the state of Kansas is holy and goes back to Jesus Christ. And that's a job I do not want because that's a really hard job. I have a hard enough job with the probably, what, 20,000 people that live in the zip codes I'm in charge of, <laughs> you know? Um, but that's his job, is to make sure that the people in his diocese become holy and become closer to Jesus. And so then you have people like me, priests, who assist him in that. So I have like, I have the chunk of Wichita that goes from the river to St. Paul Street, and then a couple blocks south of Kellogg, I can't remember what street that is. I should probably figure it out. And I think I actually go up to 13th Street that way. And that's my chunk that I'm in charge of. <laughs> when I think about it, it's like, no pressure, Father, no pressure. <laughs> um, and then you also see deacons who assist the bishop or the priests with these various duties. Uh, you don't see a lot of them in the Diocese of Wichita. Um, primarily because 
we have a lot of priests here, um, and we haven't needed to appoint deacons to assist us. Um, but in a lot of other dioceses, you'll see deacons, and sometimes you'll see them here. Um, I like to keep an open door because when you're studying to become a priest, you get ordained a deacon a year before you get ordained a priest. And so anytime those guys are in town and they call me up, I'm like, yeah, sure, come on in. You're going to preach, by the way. <laughs> you know, <laughs> I'm taking the day off, right? Um, so I think a few Sundays ago we had Deacon Miles here um, at the 8 o'clock and then... Um, You'll probably see some of them around Christmas break at some point. Um, they usually come during the week, though. Anyways, um, so you have the clergy that kind of guide the church and help her see where she's supposed to go. Um, but then you have this thing called the sense of the faithful. And we can get some ideas about the sense of the faithful when we hear it, because we can think it just means about like the majority opinion of everybody. Um, that's not exactly what we mean. Um, the sense of the faithful is the sense of the people of God, which is like you guys, uh, everybody who comes here on Sunday, things like that. Um, but it's them expressed through their bishop um, who helps them when maybe they're a little off-center to come back to the center, right? Um, and so... We call these kind of moments of teaching um, where the people of God, in union with their bishop, in union with all the other bishops, kind of come to the same conclusion. We call that an ordinary and universal magisterium. Okay, um, so it's so a teaching authority of the church, and that's the normal way it happens. Um, and those are actually considered infallible things, too. They're just not declared really fancily. Like, on Friday, we celebrate something called the Immaculate Conception, um, that Mary was conceived without sin. And in the Catholic world, this was actually something all the faithful believed, all their bishops helped them to believe, and it was expressed by the faithful long before the church ever made a feast day about it. Um, so that was something that was in this ordinary and universal magisterium until the church said, okay, let's celebrate that on December 8th every year, um, which is why Mary's birthday is September 8th, because it's nine months after December 8th. Um, we, we respect certain things in our church calendar. <laughs> um, so when you hear the census fidelium or, or the sense of the faithful, that's what we're talking about, though. Um, and that's the usual way that the church teaches about things. Um, then we have these things called ecumenical councils where a bunch of bishops get together and it's usually called by the Pope, but back in the day, sometimes it was called by the emperor. And, you know, we want to try and put, make a nice long outline as to what defines an ecumenical council, but it's not as easy as that because church history is messy. Um, but there's been 21 of them. And the last one was Vatican II. And we call these extraordinary magisterium. So it's still the teaching authority of the church because it's the bishops in union with the Pope, but it's not how it normally goes about. They got together for a meeting and decided some stuff. And usually these things happen when there's a big controversy. Vatican II was kind of an outlier um, because there wasn't a controversy like, say, Protestantism coming on. But what they saw was that the church was not adequately meeting 
um, the needs of evangelization in the world that it needed to. And so that's why Pope, Paul this, uh, Pope John XXIII called it. Um, but like the Council of Trent was called in response to Martin Luther and the various Protestant things going on. Um, and it lasted 20 years long. Uh, like, so church councils can be really long things, um, especially when there's wars and stuff. Um, like, that's why the Council of Trent took so long is because there were like wars and stuff kind of in those in-between years, if I remember correctly. And then the last one, and then I'll be done pretty quickly, is papal infallibility. All right. And I always like to make a point of talking about this one because a lot of people get the wrong idea about this. Vatican I, so that was in the 1800s, said that when the Pope teaches authoritatively on matters of faith and morals, he cannot be wrong. Um, and that the Holy Spirit kind of ensures that um, he teaches the truth in these matters. And that's what we call papal infallibility. Um, there have been two exercises of it that I am aware of since it was declared in the 1800s. One was when the Pope put the Feast of the Immaculate Conception on the calendar, but he was using his papal infallibility to confirm something that was already widely believed by the faithful. And I can't remember what the other one was, <laughs> which tells you like they don't use this very often. Um, the, uh, one of the other things that has happened that I can think of that would be kind of the, the Pope teaching on matters of faith and morals is when uh, Pope John Paul II uh, wrote that women cannot be ordained to the priesthood. Now that is another topic for another day and we will get into it if you want to, happy to talk about it. But that was one of those times where um, he was concerned enough about how it was defined that he wrote that part of the letter with his own hand just to make sure people got the point that he was the one teaching it. Um, and because it was such an unusual thing. So this is another what we'd call extraordinary magisterium because it's outside of the normal way that things happen. Um, but when, when you hear the Pope is infallible, that's what we're talking about. It has to be very specific things about which he's talking and he has to really kind of be intentionally doing it. Um, and so uh, like with, with John Paul II, when he wrote that, he said, um, for the good of the faithful and for the sake of clarity um, in my office as the Supreme Pontiff of the church uh, uh, who teaches in matters of faith and moral, morals, I say that. <laughs> like, like he's really clear that's what he's doing. And so when you have people say, well, the Pope said this and he's infallible, it's like, usually he's not teaching infallibly when he says stuff. Um, so one of the things that a lot of people struggle with right now is um, a lot of people love Pope Francis. A lot of people don't love Pope Francis, but he says a lot of things on airplanes that are a bit confusing. Um, it's important to remember that he's not talking infallibly when he's on an airplane. <laughs> he's talking like I talk to people on an airplane. You know, um, that's not an exercise of papal infallibility. Um, and I have to remind people of that sometimes. A lot of Catholics get this one wrong too, but 
it's something I like to point out. Um, okay, and I put, make sure you clarify papal infallibility. And then I have a bunch of other things that I'm not gonna read to you. Um, all right, so there's a lot of really good stuff that I copy and pasted into my notes that I will send you guys after I clean them up a little bit more. Um, but that's kind of the gist of it. And again, sorry about all the random sidetracks we went down. Hopefully they're interesting to you. They're really interesting to me. Um, but um, hopefully we can answer these questions. So when the Bible, when we say it's the word of God, right, it's God speaking through human authors, right? That's how it's his word. Um, scripture alone is not enough because like... <sighs> The question that you can ask is, okay, well, who put it together, right? If you have the Bible, who put the Bible together, right? Um, but scripture alone is not enough because it has to be interpreted and understood, and you have to have help doing that. Um, and that's the role that sacred tradition helps play in the life of the church. Um, the teaching authority of the church helps us to understand scripture, and it also helps us understand how to live. Um, and then Papal infallibility, oh, I didn't actually tell you this question. How's the exercise of papal infallibility related to the Holy Spirit? The Holy Spirit keeps the Pope from doing really dumb stuff, all right? <laughs> that's, that's how it boils down, essentially. Um, in scriptures, Jesus Christ himself said um, that the gates of hell will not prevail against his church, right? He tells us that he'll send his spirit to us. And so if he sends his spirit to live in us and he teaches us that, hell will not prevail against his church, then we really don't have anything to worry about. There are times when it's gonna get a little hairy and controversial and, and confusing, um, but we can trust that God knows what he's doing and that I don't know how things are gonna get resolved and maybe I don't always agree with it, but my job is to do my best to follow God and what I'm asked to do by the church. And if I do that, I'm gonna be okay, you know? Um, that's the things to take away from it. And so the Holy Spirit is always active guiding the church. Um, and if the Pope's about to say something really dumb, somehow the Holy Spirit will stop him, right? Like, that's just how it works. That's what we believe. <laughs> I don't know. Um, yes, the Lord works in very mysterious ways, you know, and... Um, like this is something that comes up like um, sometimes, you know, especially at funerals is what I'm thinking of. You know, um, someone who has perhaps died really young, lived a good and holy life, but was still taken from us really young. And, and like there's these questions of why, right? And, and, and that's when it gets, that's when the rubber hits the road on this stuff and, and we wonder why. And, and perhaps it's simply that God loved that person so much, he thought it was time for them to come home. And that's really hard for us to deal with, but it's part of his plan. And now, if that person is a saint, like they're up there praising God and interceding for us. And so they can do so much more good for us where they are than if they had remained on this earth, right? Um, so there's always that mysterious element where we don't quite understand it going on. Um, and that's something where the Holy Spirit, you know, is, is working and we don't get it, but we just keep, keep trying to follow, you know? 
Um, so I uh, went over time again, sorry. Um, some, like I say every week, someday I'll learn how to keep my talks to an hour. But um, anyways, thanks guys.